2016. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Our guest today is Susan Patterson, who's Associate Professor of Biology at Temple University. Hi, Susan. Hi. Her lab is interested in the cellular and molecular mechanisms of memory, specifically in interactions of aging, immune dysregulation, BDNF biology, and synaptic plasticity. So around the room today, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Isabel Muzio. Hello. And me, I'm your host, as always, Salma Karashi. We haven't spent a lot of time um, in the series on neuroimmune interactions, so mm-hmm. I thought uh, it would be a great time to get sort of up to speed on this a little bit. Yeah, we have weird noises. Sorry, listeners. It's just construction season or something here. Um, so I know you're not an immunologist first and foremost, so your perspective is as a neuroscientist, which is great because that's what we are. Um, but can you walk us through what it is we know about how a peripheral inflammation can influence a neuronal phenomenon like LTP, for example, which you looked at, right? Um, so I'm interested in specifically understanding, like, you know, the points of contact between the periphery and the CNS. I mean, the, the blood-brain barrier, obviously, mm-hmm. what, what, we, you know, what, what we're to glean about, about that in terms of later we'll talk about aging. If you want to mm-hmm. bring that in now, we can do that. Um, the cellular players and the molecular players, let's just... just you know, if you, wherever you want to get started, and the time course too, which is what it, I mean, all of it is this. We it's all fair game at this point, so I'm kind of fair hoping enough. to mine that a little bit. Um, I have a long-standing interest in how we learn and remember things, and my lab focuses on the cellular and molecular end of that. Um, but I have, in the last few years, become very interested in how the immune system can affect that. And it turns out, perhaps not surprisingly, that the immune system, um, both in the periphery and in the central nervous system, uh, talk to one another, but they also talk to the nervous system. And that occurs for a lot of important reasons. That kind of cost talk is very important in getting your body ready to handle infections and uh, communicating to the brain and to all of the things that the brain can regulate that there can be a problem or something that we should be aware of and need to be ready to take care of. So that's an old understanding of crosstalk between the immune system and the brain, and it makes good sense. We certainly know that if you're sick, um, you need the brain to do certain things to get you in a position to get well. Uh, Sickness behavior is a good example of this. We've all seen what happens when we get the flu. I'm guessing uh, that you're probably not that different from me. If you're ill, you don't really want to be out running around and socializing with your friends and hanging out and doing all kinds of things. So there actually are systems that communicate the fact that you are ill. The immune system has chemical signals that it sends to the brain and other parts of the, the body as well, the effect that there is an illness going on. You asked specifically about the molecules. These are called pro-inflammatory cytokines, and they're produced by different tissues in the body. Um, They can communicate with the brain directly. They sometimes leak through the blood-brain barrier or cross in places where it's thin. Uh, Circumventricular organs is a good example. 
Some of them can actually be transported across the blood-brain barrier. But those pro-inflammatory cytokines can also bind to receptors, for example, on the vagus nerve. So they can send signals that are neural as well as circulatory signals. Um, What they tend to do is to trigger production of additional pro-inflammatory cytokines in the brain. Uh, Some parts of the brain have cells that tend to make more of these than others. Um, A lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines in the brain are made by uh, microglial cells, which are brain macrophages, essentially. Um, They produce pro-inflammatory cytokines in several parts of the brain, but they produce a lot of them, particularly in the hippocampus, which is very interesting because, of course, that's a brain structure that's heavily involved in both memory and in learning things and in making appropriate associations. And this gets back, I think, to this idea that there may be evolutionary reasons why you have this kind of communication. So uh, the immune system basically has a way of affecting how the hippocampus is functioning. And uh, it turns out that there are very high, uh, very high levels of receptors for these pro-inflammatory cytokines that are being made in the brain, and it's a way of actually adjusting the function in a very elegant way. The sickness behaviors are good because they, they help you to get ready to get well, but they're also very interesting, and there's a a lot of question these days if sometimes these sickness behaviors may be corrupted uh, to give rise to depression and things along those lines. In fact, what happens to you when you have the flu is not all that different from what happens to people with clinical depression in terms of how they interact with the world. People uh, tend to sort of retreat into themselves. If you're getting well, that's a good thing. Um, if you're sitting around too depressed to move or to do anything, that's not such a good thing. And it may be that inappropriate signaling of some of the sickness behavior uh, circuitry is one of the things that goes wrong. So are we too... So how reactive is the immune system from the brain's point of view? Like how much flux are we talking about in terms of, is this just sickness? Are we ta- I mean, is there what kinds of environmental influences actually affect how much cytokine different brain areas see and, and how, um, because, you know, we're talking about a lot of potential for interaction and, um, you know, I, I'm just interested in how reactive the whole system is and the time course of responses to things. Uh, it turns out it's quite reactive. Um, for a long while, people thought that particularly microglial cells, these cells that make the pro-inflammatory cytokines in the brain, these chemical signals that, that talk to the hippocampus and other brain bits and tell it that something interesting and potentially dangerous sometimes is going on, um, they're actually a very dynamic cell population. They can ramp up production of pro-inflammatory cytokines very quickly in response to signals, but they also um, are involved in surveying the microenvironment around them all the time in a very dynamic way that we had not previously recognized. So microglial cells like macrophages can be thought of as sort of the frontline defense troops of the immune system. So their job is to keep Uh, looking for trouble 
pro-inflammatory cytokines can signal trouble, but also other types of um, chemical signatures, bits of invading microorganisms, for example, can provide chemical signatures of troubles, pathogens, uh, damage bits of neuron or glial cells or my, bits of microorganisms can all provide chemical fragments that can turn these things on. And this can happen quite rapidly. That The innate immune system of which the, the microglia are a part is there to respond very quickly to, to some kind of threat or something that acquires, requires attention. I am particularly interested in the interaction with aging, especially because you have shown that... Um, this in, an, an external infection can can have a much more powerful effect in in the age in aged animals than young ones. But is the infection itself, or is that the aged animals already have mechanisms that don't allow them to adapt quickly to whatever external stressors are affecting the system? So, my question is: Is it specific to the immune response? Or is just that the slowdown of any response mechanism against the threat that can uh, compromise the, 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 the adaptation of the organism in order to respond, and that in turn, because everything synergizes, you have the cognitive deficit? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, the answer, as is often the case in biology, is all of the above, but more complicated than we previously thought. So certainly aged animals... Um, employ somewhat different strategies for certain types of processes, certain types of learning processes, as you well know. Um, they have somewhat different response capacities in a number of other systems as well, the immune system amongst them. So all of those things can come into play, although it's a mistake to think that the immune system in the old animals is not able to respond. Uh, in fact, it over-responds in many cases. This is one of the things that probably drives delirium that we sometimes see, for example, in older people in response to a surgery or an illness. Uh, we've all seen this. Uh, you have an elderly neighbor, uh, you know, 95 years old, sharp as a tack, doing very, very well, and then there is some kind of a precipitating uh, bad event. They, they get sick, they fall, they break a hip, they get pneumonia. Um, they go to the hospital for what should be a trivial operation, and they are potentially at much greater risk of developing cognitive difficulties. Sometimes this can take the form of mild confusion. Sometimes it can be full-blown uh, delirium and severe disorientation. Um, one of the reasons why that happens, although it's very incompletely understood, is that these microglial cells in the brains of older individuals, for reasons we don't understand, um, over-respond. So they are perceiving a much greater threat and mounting a much greater defense than it is actually warranted under the circumstances. And they produce enough of these chemical signatures of trouble that they recruit a lot of the immune system to respond in very inappropriate ways that actually impacts functioning of neurons in, in a negative way. Do we see that kind of dysregulation in the periphery with the 
macrophage? That's a great question, and interestingly enough, not so much. Um, the immune system, the peripheral immune system of older people, does not respond exactly as that of young people, but the sort of profound dyssynchrony is less common in the peripheral nervous system. The, the, the nervous, the immune elements in the brain seem to be more prone to it for reasons we don't really understand. Or it may also be that it's a little more evident in the brain. Uh, problems with neurons are sort of by definition potentially more serious because we don't replace neurons in the same way that, for example, we replace liver cells. You obviously need a certain amount of liver cells functioning well for appropriate, uh, well, for life. But you can replace them if some of them are damaged uh, in an immune response, for example. That's much harder in the brain. We don't replace neurons very well. Is there a link between uh, some of the things that you see, for example, and with infections and neurogenesis? Because... What I am interested um, about, you mentioned today that I will recapitulate for the listeners that didn't hear this, that exercise tends to ameliorate the effects of um, the infection. And exercise has this, the same effect on neurogenesis. It can uh, prevent the decline of neurogenesis. So I wonder whether there, people have looked at the interaction between Uh, these processes, or is something that still remains an open question? I think people are starting to look at it. I don't think it's been looked at much in this particular context, although there are some indications that um, in situations where you have a lot of inflammation going on, there is less neurogenesis. I don't think people have looked as much at the direct links between that as they have looked at it in the context of other ongoing disease pathologies. So certainly inflammation is a common feature associated with Alzheimer's disease, with Parkinson's, with Huntington's, with many neurodegenerative disorders or with damage. Um, but often when people have examined these questions in the context of neurogenesis, they've been thinking more about the active ongoing disease problem and thinking of the inflammation end of it is a secondary consequence rather than perhaps a contributing factor to the uh, decrease in neurogenesis in this case or other elements of the pathology. So how do we get from a dysregulated microglial response to a change in neural coding? Um, short answer is that we know that if the microglia are over-responsive and they are in turn producing more pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, that can affect neurons directly. Amongst other things, uh, particularly the hippocampus in the brain has a very, very high concentration of receptors for pro-inflammatory cytokines uh, in glial cells, but also neurons. So there can be direct effects on neurons, uh, and we're still learning about exactly how those work. But certainly there is the potential for effects on immediate synaptic plasticity and also on um, 
more long-term genetic mechanisms. And my lab does some of that work, and a number of other people are starting to look at it as well. Uh, one of the, the hopes, I think, of many of us is that as we learn more about both the short-term and the longer-term epigen- epigenetic consequences, we may be able to get a much better idea of why it is synapses first start to fail. Um, that would be good in clinically because the acute onset of this sort of problem is very significant and a major clinical problem, but it also is a, a bad prognostic indicator for developing further problems, and we don't really know why. It may be that when someone develops this sort of um, immune event-driven delirium, it's essentially a failed stress test for the brain, so maybe uh, it's unmasking some underlying weakness, but I think it's also quite possible, and there's data to support this, that these events themselves are damaging. And if we can begin to identify more specifically what's happening, particularly at an epigenetic level, uh, but also maybe uh, at an omic level, if you will. So we're starting to do transcriptomics, uh, genomics on these things, to look for molecular and cellular signatures of these very early failures of synaptic function and looking over time to see how those progress. I think we may learn a good deal about where where these complex higher-order plasticity processes first start to, to fail. Does it make any kind of functional sense? And why would neurons, synapses, quit working right when cytokines get high? Is there... I have is sort of... Good a, thing? I, 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 like a good thing? I think I have a... Reverting to my caveman example, there's sort of an amphipomorphic. When you're sick... Um, putting you down to focus on getting well is not a bad evolutionary strategy uh, at the cellular circuit and system level. As an organism, it makes a certain amount of sense that you would not want to be running around from an energetic point of view. It also makes uh, makes sense from a cellular point of view, if you think about it, because higher-order synaptic plasticity, the type that's involved in long-term memory, is an energetically expensive business. You have to send signals back to the nucleus to turn on genes and make gene products. You have to traffic the stuff out. You have to get it appropriately uh, incorporated into active synapses, and you have to be able to use that in some meaningful way. That, that is costly. Neurons are already energy hogs, but... So is LTD cheaper than exactly. LTD? <laughs> yeah. So that, 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 let's back up a little bit. So you've looked at LTP and LTD. We have. And why don't you t- t- tell us a little bit about what differential effects you've seen on both. Okay. Following and, 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 then, and that's exactly the question I had, which is what Charlie just asked. We'll get to it. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. Uh, unfortunately, the, the preview is I don't know... <laughs> The answer to his question yet. We're in the process of trying to find out. Uh, we know that if you have this sort of immune storm, a cytokine storm, if you will, in the brains of older animals, that it compromises the capacity for certain types of late-phase LTP, and it compromises long-term memory. 
Um, we know some of the processes that are particularly affected are particularly dependent on brain-derived neurotrophic factor, amongst other things, and some of the downstream players. Uh, we know they're compromised in these systems, and we know that that is driven by interleukin, uh, 1-beta, and other pro-inflammatory cytokines, because if we block the actions of those in the central nervous system, although not in the periphery, uh, we can block these deleterious effects on memory-related long-term plasticity. Um, we know that under those circumstances, it is not that the capacity for plasticity is completely compromised because, in fact, there is a shift from LTP to LTD. So over a wider range of low frequencies uh, in animal aged animals with a history of infection, so this exaggerated inflammatory response in the brain, you see um, a greater tendency to induce LTD-like processes over a larger range of plasticity, uh, over a larger range of, of stimuli. That's interesting because older brains already are a little shifted more toward depression processes, um, you probably are well aware it's relatively easy to induce long-term depression in very young animals or very old animals, not so much in young adult animals. So there's already a little bit of a shift with aging uh, to a more depressive phenotype. Is LTD as finicky as LTP in its induction protocols? Or is it just sort of a baseline? Uh, no, it, it's actually in some ways harder to induce and measure. Uh, amongst other things, it's a narrower dynamic range. So to, to get meaningful differences can be problematic, particularly in young adults. Uh, in older animals, it's easier to induce, but um, having this um, inflammatory process going on in the brain of older animals um, shifts that even more, so that you are more likely to induce LTD over a wider range of low-frequency stimuli. That has some interesting implications, because we don't know exactly what LTD does, but most of us figure that it's a way of resetting the brain to encode new information, essentially, particularly in challenging or novel environments. And you can look at the literature and come to different conclusions about what that means in older animals. But I think the tendency to have an even greater tendency to favor LTD induction basically suggests that those older animals would be less able to encode or process novel information. And if you go far enough down that road, you might even imagine that you could get into a situation where you're favoring erasure of some older memories. And in fact, this is something akin to what we see in human patients. I have a question. I think, I don't know if I recall correctly, but I think you mentioned that in uh, older animals, the effects of a, a specific infection can last up to three months, correct? Mm -hmm. Has someone done repeated infections, and is there a point when you cannot reverse the changes that you see? And are there any molecular markers that correlate with that? Because I... I it's not difficult for me to understand that for a period, and I have seen that in, in my own family, that when crisis after crisis happens, 
then there is a decline in cognitive ability, but over time people recover. Now, have someone tested this sequentially and repeated infections can lead to more severe deficits associated with maybe neurodegeneration or I don't know if I am just jumping too much or there is no evidence about this. Certainly, uh, just looking at human populations, uh, we would suspect that's true. The slightly longer answer to your question is people are starting to do that in animal models. And in fact, we do know that uh, repeated infections or um, to model a very common human situation, if you have an animal that has a sham surgery, for example, and then has an infection after it, like a post-operative infection, um, they will recover eventually, but the deficits that we observe in that context last longer. So, yes, I think my suspicion is that there is probably a point of cellular and circuit no return. Um, when that occurs, exactly, we don't know. And it may be quite different for different individuals. That could be a factor of uh, genetics and life history and lifestyle. Probably all of them would contribute. Do you see any potential overlap with some of the new ways in which concussion is being discussed? Absolutely. Uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a very active area of research at Temple. We have one of the, the larger research centers for that. And many of the inflammatory processes that are going on there uh, have some commonalities with the things that are driven by um, pathogen-evoked activation of the immune system. And um, some of the interesting pathologies you see as a result of that, uh, particularly things like PTSD, or depression, uh, and some cognitive impairments, all may have immune elements that drive them to some degree. So when you say immune, I've been trying to wrap my head around this for a, a long time. When you say immune elements drive something that's mm-hmm. fundamentally neuronal and manifests in behavior, so we think of, of neuronal responses on a time scale. It's very different from the time frame of immune responses. Is that right? I don't, I don't know anything about immune responses. Um, yes and no. I- immune responses like the nervous system have both short-term and long-term processes. A, a very crude breakdown is that the innate immune system exists basically to provide frontline defense for immediate threats. This can be... Um, pathogens, but it can also be damage. Um, And elements of the innate immune system, like the microglia, which are essentially brain macrophages, are there to respond immediately to the threat, but also to provide chemical signals to other elements of the immune system about what they should be doing, how they should be responding. Um, That happens relatively quickly. There are secondary things in the immune system, the acquired immune system, where, for example, you learn that you need to make antibodies to something or whatever. So that's on a much longer time scale. Those interact in very interesting ways with with what happens in the nervous system. So there are very short-term changes that can occur. But if those are sufficiently meaningful, then we have means of coding those into longer-lasting changes, 
sometimes very long-lasting changes. I continued to be awed by the fact that human memories can last over a hundred years. It's an incredibly complex biological problem, and one of my real interests is in seeing if we can take this situation where the immune system is manipulating the nervous system in ways that have significant short-term consequences, but may also set up patterns of changes in the nervous system that can last for very, very long times and have long-term consequences. It's one of the reasons I'm quite excited about um, some of the new work and the new collaborations I have at Temple, is I have a very large cadre of new uh, colleagues who are computational biologists, and what they're really good at is this omic research that I was referring to earlier. So these are people who look at genomics. They look at large-scale genetic changes. They look at proteomics, large-scale changes in proteins. Um, uh, They have interests in epigenetics. And we know so little about how this immune neuron interaction can change over time. But I'm hoping that by bringing some of the powers of computational biology to a system where things are first starting to change in meaningful ways, we can learn a lot about whether or not there are certain molecular signatures that accompany early synaptic failure or potentially reversible synaptic failure or early synaptic failure that goes quiescent for long periods of times but may in fact be a risk factor for subsequent problems, particularly if there are additional insults or other types of challenges. So you rarely see any homeostatic mechanism that doesn't have the full circuit, right? Mm -hmm. The the feedback back. So how is it that you have the CNS and neurons sort of feeding back upon these elements? Or is, I mean, have we figured any of that out now? Not that I know of, if I'm understanding your question. We, We actually know very little about how these interactions occur. Um, I think for a very long time the thinking was that the brain was sort of an immune privilege site and there wasn't a whole lot of immune activity to begin with. And what immune activity there was was basically to try and keep you from getting uh, meningitis or uh, to respond to a pathogen if you happen to eat a nasty worm in some less than savory eatery or if um, you got bashed on the head. So there was the initial protection against something bad, and then there was the cleanup and the attempt to, to reset homeostasis. Um, those are all really important functions, but I think there wasn't nearly as much recognition of just how dynamic and how fundamental those interactions may be. I think some of the most interesting research in neuroscience, although admittedly I'm a little biased in this area, has come out in the last three to five years showing that while the nervous immune communication does all of those things I just talked about, it's a much more active process than we thought. The developing brain produces a lot more synapses than we ultimately want, and uh, for those of us who worked on growth factors, the explanation for for how that thinning comes about, developmental pruning, 
was basically about um, competition for limited resources. So the old models had neurons sending out processes looking for nice growth factors in their target tissues. And when they got there, if they got there soon enough and made it a good enough connection, they got some of those growth factor goodies. And those were the, the synapses that got stabilized and got kept. And if you didn't make it there, if you were an outgoing process and didn't get enough of those goodies, you regressed and sometimes died. Well, that happens. But something else really interesting happens, which it turns out the immune system plays some role in thinning out uh, unwanted synapses in the developing nervous system. And this is something we've really just found out about in the last three to five years. But as someone who had early training in evolutionary genetics and then fell in love with neuroscience and then immunology, this is a vastly exciting idea. You have a wonderful immune system that's really good at taking out unwanted things. Why wouldn't you use it to take out unwanted or underperforming synapses? And in fact, this does seem to happen in the developing nervous system. There have been a, a series of cell and science papers about this recently. Um, I think that probably doesn't just happen during development. I think it may be happening uh, throughout the lifetime of the animal. And so that you may have a, 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 an active system for taking out synapses that are not or deemed to be undesirable in one way or another. But conversely, if that mechanism exists, I can also imagine how it could be corrupted sometimes and, and take out synapses that maybe you want. I, so, I still find um, kind of difficult to understand um, how you can isolate the effects of inflammation, for example, from other factors that also may be influential in cognitive decline. Because as we age... For example, sleep patterns become altered. And it is known that if you have an infection, uh, that would promote more sleep, which in turn may affect cognition. Mm -hmm. So it's like all the systems are so interrelated that isolating the factors becomes a significant challenge. And understanding exactly what is um, the final effect at the neuronal level in terms of plasticity and learning um, it, it's very complex, mm -hmm. to say the least. So I don't know if you have some insight about that. It is very complicated. Um, I think we are really in the very, very early stages of understanding how the relationship between the immune system and the nervous system works. Um, But I also think it's going to be a very fruitful area for further investigations. It's very hard to find any of the, the ills that plague us, the neurological ills that plague us that don't have some degree of inflammation or immune activation associated with them. I think we have tended to think of that as being secondary to the underlying causes of whatever the problem is. I would submit, I think, that in many cases they may be uh, a very active component of the problem. That's not a, 
a, a radical idea. I think many people believe that inflammation, well, in fact, we know that inflammation can make many of these processes worse. But I think we have not always fully appreciated previously just how important a role that may be. Super. Thank you for joining us, uh, Susan Patterson. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.